Today's scripture reading uh, is from John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amanda, for reading God's word to us. And thank you so much, Emily, for sharing with us. And Brian, for being here too. Guys, we love the work you're doing. It's, it's awesome. And I think that, that as much as um, the more that we hear and see the work that you're doing, the more I think the Lord um, calls us to be a part of what you're doing and, and to be as involved as we possibly can with what you're doing. It, it's, it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. New Hope, it is, uh, it is no accident that in recent weeks, we have been focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our God has brought us to, to, to focus on Christ's resurrection and on the promise of our resurrection unto eternal life as citizens of his kingdom. It's no coincidence that this is what we've been focusing on during this, our eighth month of living socially distanced, pandemic-rocked lives. And it's no coincidence that this has been our focus in the weeks leading up to the 2020 presidential election. The Lord is good. He loves his church so much. And he's helping us to understand how to live through these days with wisdom, with hope, by, by reorienting us to behold the resurrected king, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. We've been asking ourselves, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with us right now? And, and if, you've been, if you've been paying attention and if you've been internalizing what the Lord's been teaching us, that, then you are being equipped, whether you realize it or not, in small, slow ways, being equipped not just to cope with these surreal circumstances that surround us, but to actually grow in hope because the true king of the universe is alive. And all his promises are true. The resurrected king of the universe is teaching us that while your fears 
and your frustrations are very, very real, they are also very, very temporal. They're fleeting. As is COVID, and as are political races and political parties, they're all like a vapor. They're here and gone, but his kingdom is immovable, which means that our hope is unshakable. The Lord knows how easy it is for us to lose sight of that reality. And so he has us here in John 20. And this section that we're coming to today, it confronts us with this question, this, this issue that we need to resolve. Do you believe? Do you believe? It's the purpose of this whole book is to bring us to this point. There's this scene that Amanda just read to us that shows us what it looks like for disbelief to turn into belief. And then at the end there's, of the section, there are these words that we've glanced at dozens of times as we've worked through the Gospel of John over the course of the series. And those words are words that urge each of us to, to come to terms with, with this issue Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because John says, if you believe, and it's only by believing that you may have life in his name. So to understand this section of scripture, we're going to ask two simple questions. The first one is, what is believing? And the second one is, do you believe? What is believing? Do you believe? And my hope is that we'll each come away with a clearer sense of where we stand. And, and then at the end, I'll try to make some applications that address our present cultural moment. So let's look at the scene. It's an amazing one. The resurrected Jesus, he's already appeared to his friend Mary Magdalene in the garden outside his tomb. Later that same Sunday, that resurrected Jesus, he showed up in a locked room where his other disciples were gathered, hiding from the authorities, and he spoke peace to them. And he showed him his scarred hands and sighed, and we saw last week that Jesus wasn't just greeting them, and he wasn't just proving who he was by flashing his scars. No, he was telling and showing them that because he had suffered for them, because he had died and risen again for them, now they could be at peace. Now they had peace with God because he had paid the cost for their sins. He had absorbed the wrath of God and the curse of death in his body and had the scars to prove it. And he rose from the dead, proving to them and to us that peace had been secured. Shalom had been won reconciliation with God, wholeness, complete wholeness had been secured because full atonement had been made. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And when Jesus showed up in that locked room, he had the scars to prove that Isaiah was right. 
One of the original 12 disciples was not there that evening to see Jesus. We don't know why he wasn't there. His name was Thomas, also called Didymus. That's his Greek name. It means twin. We don't know who his twin was. But when the others who were there told Thomas about this visit from their teacher, who had just died three days before, Thomas didn't believe him. In fact, in verse 25b, it says, he says, Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel bad for Thomas, because I think he gets a bad rap. Folks call him Doubting Thomas. I hope they're not still calling him that in heaven. I don't think so, but... He probably got called Doubting Thomas for a while. We just refer to him as that. And and he's gone down in history as the skeptic. And it's really unfair. Because for one thing, none of these disciples believed Mary Magdalene and the other sisters when they came and said, the tomb is empty. And in Luke 24, it tells us that when these other disciples saw the resurrected Christ for the first time, they all had trouble believing it was him. In fact, they were scared of him. So they weren't all that different from doubting Thomas, quote unquote, but he gets the rep for being a skeptic. Even though back in John 11, Thomas was the one who said, let's go with Jesus that we may die with him. You see, Thomas was ride or die, but he got labeled the doubting one. In any case, his role in this scene is major and he helps us to answer this first question, What is believing? What is believing? So on the next Sunday, the Bible says of John 20, uh, verse 24 says it was eight days later, but it's really one week later because the way that the Hebrews at the time would count days, it was really Sunday to Sunday, but the way they counted days, they would always count the present day also as, as well as the last day. So they counted as eight, whatever. Um, I, I guess they did math differently than we do. Jesus, seven days later, shows up again where these disciples are. On the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, they are locked in that room again, hiding. And Thomas is with them. And Jesus shows up. And again, just like we said last week, we don't know how Jesus got into the room. We don't know if he walked through the wall or if he came under the door or through the... We don't know. All we know is that he appeared. And he says these powerful words again, peace be with you. Again, that's no greeting. That's a declaration of truth and and a bestowal of wholeness and peace on his people. And then in verse 27, he said to Thomas, and I invite you to look at this with your own eyes so you can see um, what you should be a little like Thomas in this case. If you don't see it in the scriptures, don't believe it when I say it, right? Look at it in the scriptures so that you can believe. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, touch me. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. And we don't know if Thomas even touched him. John doesn't tell us. 
What we do know is that Thomas makes this magnificent proclamation. It's a confession of faith. He says, my Lord, my God, it's who you are. What is believing? It's more than acknowledging the facts. It's more than saying, okay, I accept the idea that Jesus probably did die and rise from the dead. Or I know certainly that he died and rose from the dead. Believing in him is more than that. Remember, in the past couple of weeks, we've said that the question of whether Jesus of Nazareth really rose from the dead is foundational. Because everything that Jesus said and allegedly did only matters if he really walked out of that tomb. But believing in him goes further than simply accepting the the historicity of his resurrection. Believing in Jesus is an act of personal allegiance and personal submission to him. You are my Lord, Thomas says. It means you're the only one who's worthy to be served. You're the only one who's worthy to be obeyed, followed to the end. And if you are Lord, then money isn't Lord. If you are Lord, then I'm not Lord of my life. If you are Lord, then success isn't, approval isn't, power isn't. If you are Lord, then blank isn't. And you can put anything in that blank. If Jesus is Lord, nothing else, nothing else can be Lord. If you are Lord, then only you deserve my full obedience and devotion. And that's what Thomas says. And he calls him, my God, my God, you are the only one who can save. You made me and only you can recreate me. I was under your wrath and so only you could rescue me from your wrath, from sin and from its penalty and its power because salvation belongs to our God, Revelation 7 says. Verses 30 and 31 of this section, they shine more light on what belief is. It says there, verse 30, this is, we've looked at this before, and we've said this is kind of the, the purpose statement at the center of the Gospel of John. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs, and you could include in those signs, his resurrection, were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Some have said that these words, they describe two aspects of what we must trust and accept about Jesus. Believing in him includes accepting and trusting these two aspects, his person and his work, who he is and what he's done. When the Apostle John says, believe that he is the Son of God, well, the Son of God tells us who Jesus is in his essence. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's one with God. He is eternal deity. But John also says, believe that he is the Christ. The Christ, that tells us what he's done. He's the chosen, promised Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
It identifies him as the chosen, promised, anointed Messiah who was sent to rescue his people from their sins and reconcile them to God. Christ, the Son of God, it's who he is and it's what he's done. And it's at the start of today's service, if I were to ask you, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I assume that I get a few different answers. And some of you might say, well, to believe in Jesus means uh, I believe that Jesus came and died. Okay? Or I believe that Jesus died for my sins. You might say that too. And, and neither of those are untrue. And, th and they both matter, no doubt. And I, I don't want to overcomplicate what belief in Jesus is, but I do want us to push in deeper, into a deeper realization of what it means to truly believe. It's a receiving of who Jesus is and what he has done. His person and his work. And it's an act of personal submission and allegiance to him. He is my Lord, my God. So I will follow him. I will obey him. I will love him. I will worship him all the days of my life. Personal allegiance and submission. And corporately as a church, it means he is our Lord and our God. And so as a church, we covenant together to worship and obey and, 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 and proclaim ultimate allegiance to him and him alone. Exclusively. We as a church covenant together to behold and broadcast his majesty and his mercy. And we will stubbornly focus our attention and worship on him alone to the exclusion of every other thing that might distract us from him. And it's our shared love and allegiance to him that unites us all. Believing in Jesus means in part that it's our love and allegiance to him that unites us all. Nothing else unites us all. It's my attempt to answer the question from this passage on what is belief? What is believing? Next question. Do you believe? Do you believe? You know, scholars have noted that this phrase in verse 31 where John says, um, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Some scholars have noted that that phrase could really be translated differently. It could be flipped grammatically. It could and perhaps should be flipped and stated this way, so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. You see the difference? The emphasis is a little different. It's as if John is saying, so that you would believe that the true Christ, the true Son of God, is no one else other than Jesus. In other words, you need to stop believing that others are the Christ. Give up on looking for other Christs. Stop looking for other sons of God, okay? There aren't others. He's the one. But again, why does this matter to us? Here's why. Because it is possible. Let me, let, me form it in, let me phrase it in the form of a question. I don't want to project my own sins on you. Is it possible that you may be tempted to begin to think that others can rescue you? That some other person or people can rescue you? 
from your troubles, from your problems? Are you ever tempted to think that some other person or people can give you safety? Are you ever lured into thinking that other things can give you satisfaction? Is it possible that you can begin to believe that other things are worthy of your allegiance? Even your worship. Maybe you don't sing praise songs to them and get on your knees, but they are worth your obsessing over. They are worth you centering your life on. You love these things or people or whatever they are, whether it's an ideology or it's a person or it's a group of people or it's a thing, whatever it is, you love it so much that it becomes your focus. Is it even possible that you can see these other things as the things that fundamentally unite you with others so that you began to think the foundational link between me and the people in my community is we share the same ideologies, we share the same opinions, we share the same affiliations, and that's what really matters. That's what keeps us together, and I cannot be united to others whose opinions, affiliations, and ideologies differ from mine. No, I'm not united to them. You might both believe in Christ, but I'm not united to them, or I live practically as if I'm not united to them in the way that I speak about them or think about them. You see what I'm getting at? It's possible, I believe, for us to live in such a way that we begin to center other people and things and even look to them for hope, for rescue, for our identity. I was talking to my son recently about um, uh, just the fact that, you know, people have bumper stickers on their cars or flags outside their house that might uh, uh, list the name of, of a, um, a political candidate, or in some cases an organization, or any kind of organization. And we were talking about the fact that he said to me, he says, you know, sometimes if I see a flag outside of someone's house or, or a bumper sticker with a candidate's name on it, it doesn't really make me want to vote for that person less or more. My son doesn't vote, of course, he's too young. But he said, it doesn't really make me want to vote. It's not like seeing a bumper sticker is going to convince me. And so we talked about the fact that he's actually the one who made this, this observation, that that bumper sticker or that flag outside the house is less about convincing other people. It's more about identifying the person who puts up the flag or the bumper sticker, right? It's an identity thing. It's driving around saying, this is who I am. Check the sticker, right? Check the flag. That's who I am. That's who lives in this house. That's me. That's our family. It's an identifier. And is it possible, is it possible that we, as those who have put our faith in Jesus, are allowing ourselves to be identified found fundamentally by things other than Jesus? And even unite with others over those things to the detriment of our fellowship in Christ. So that your unity with others who love Jesus starts to lose importance. So that in subtle ways, you start to feel like your unity with those, maybe it's your unity with those of your ethnicity. Maybe it's your unity with those in uh, the same race. Maybe it's your unity with those from the same socio socioeconomic background. Or maybe it's your unity with those who belong to the same political party or hold similar political views, you start to think that those are the connections that really matter. And you're even willing to break fellowship with believers in Christ because they're not the same ethnicity, 
or they don't vote the same way. You're even willing, perhaps, to look down on fellow Christians or accuse fellow Christians of not really taking Jesus seriously because they don't share your political views. We can't let that happen, New Hope. We can't let that happen. Now, even as I say that, I wonder if some of you are like, what are you talking about, Rob? That's not going to happen. That's not the way I'm thinking. That's not the way my brain works. If that's the case, praise the Lord. I hope that this applies to none of us, but I suspect that it probably applies to many of us because we all harbor this, this tendency to displace Christ with other things. We cannot let this happen, especially not now. This is, this is a, a, a season of such difficulty for us as a church and as a nation. We need to remember more than ever what John 17:21 tells us, where Jesus Christ prays to the Father that they, his people, may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are one. The call to believe in Christ is a call to give him ultimate allegiance and to find our very identif identity in him. So that we can say, before I am blank, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And you can put anything in that blank. Can you put anything in that blank? You need to. As a follower of Christ, you and I need to put everything in that blank and say, before I am X, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, now, church, Jesus is talking about us. This is awesome. He's talking to Thomas, but he's talking about us. When he's talking about those who believe but haven't seen, that's you. The original disciples all had this glorious privilege of seeing Jesus with their own eyes. We don't get that privilege. And yet, he says, there is a blessedness in believing when you haven't seen. There's this eternal blessedness. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, though you, he's talking to Christians, and remember, Peter's one who has seen Jesus face to face before he died and after he rose from the dead, and just as he was ascending, Peter's eyes were on him. But Peter himself says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is the blessedness that Jesus is talking about here? For those who have not seen but still believe in Jesus, this is the blessedness. It's the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And while you're living here in this world, joy inexpressible, filled with glory. Beginning now and into eternity. There are many people who saw Jesus and did not believe in him. But here's what Jesus is saying to each of us now. He's saying to us what he said to Thomas in verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. If you have believed, but you feel the pull to give your obedience, and allegiance to others. You feel that pull to center other people or other things or, or, or listen to other voices over Jesus's. 
His words to you and to me are the same. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He is the only one who provides life and safety and rescue. He's the only one who's worthy of your trust, your focus. As you try to navigate this awful season, everyone, I keep hearing so many people saying how awful 2020 is. I can't disagree with that. In spite of God's blessings and goodness, this has been a difficult year. And we don't know if the next year is going to be a turn for the better or the worse. As you try to navigate this awful season, Jesus is saying to you, do not disbelieve, but believe in me. Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, and I would add in presidents or in parties, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans and their policies come to nothing. But blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. So back to our question, do you believe? Or, or, even, or even think about it more presently in this moment, are you believing in Jesus? Are you believing that, that Jesus is Lord, that he has risen and that he's returning is he your Lord and your God? You know what's riding on that answer, right? It's life, John says. Life is riding on how you answer that question. And that life is not a reward for believing in Jesus. You don't get life as a reward for believing. No, to know and believe him is life. To know him and believe in him is life. Real life what you were made for. Listen, to exist and not know him is to exist without living. To exist and not know him is to exist without living. John 17, 3, Jesus says these words, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's to know God, Father, and the Son whom he sent. May we all experience that life. I want to end by just making a couple of applications. Several weeks back, um, I taught on the role of the elder or pastor in the local church from 1 Peter 5 with a specific focus on the call to shepherd the flock. And we saw that just as a shepherd protects and feeds sheep by leading them to safety and leading them to food and water, in the very same way, pastors, elders, are called to protect and feed by leading people to safety and nourishment in Jesus, to eat and drink from him, to find rest and safety in him. Our job as your elders is to point and lead each other and you all as a church 
back to Jesus again and again. That passage in 1 Peter 5 reminds us that the flock of the church isn't ours. It's his, the chief shepherd's. And one implication of that reality is that this church is not meant to feed on my opinions, my wisdom, my predictions. If I try to feed you that way, we will all starve and die. We'll be eaten up by wolves. In fact, only a wolf would try to shepherd you that way. false shepherd. Our job as pastors is to lead the flock of God to Jesus. And as I studied that passage, and again, in God's providence, it came just at this right time because it was so helpful for me. I don't know if it was helpful for you. Sometimes I preach. I don't know if it's helpful for you. It's, it's always helpful for me, though, because it served me as a reminder to stay in my lane and do what I'm called to. And that's especially important because we are living in an age where we're all kind of tempted to stray from our lanes, you know? Especially because we're living in an age where we have access to so much information, don't we? And, and we all may be prone to think that if we take in enough of that information, we can become experts. Or at least trustworthy guides and sources just because we read a few books on a given topic. I feel that way sometimes. I read a couple of books and I think, oh, I'm ready to teach on this. I'm an expert now. Silly. Or worse yet, we've taken in some podcasts. We've watched some documentaries, some YouTube videos. I read some blog posts. I know about this issue now. I, and I suspect some of you, if not all of you, can feel like, hey, hey, my opinions matter, and, and, and they should be shared publicly if possible. And some of us, again, some of you may be so humble you don't feel this way, but some of us got a problem with this, me included. Perhaps I'm chief of sinners in this case. May even feel that our positions aren't just worth sharing, but they really should be adopted by every other thinking Christian. That's a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous for pastors, but not just for pastors and elders. So I was reminded of my calling to proclaim Christ, his cross, his resurrection, his return, and the implications of all that for us as a church and for the world. Now, in fact, one aspect of pointing to Christ is also, of course, teaching on what he desires for us what he demands of us. How can we point to Jesus without talking about what he's calling us to and commands us to do and how he commands us to live? As Emily said, how he calls us to walk in righteousness, to align our lives with his commands and his pattern, his model. Pointing to Jesus and leading others to Jesus necessarily involves talking about what Jesus loves and what Jesus hates. It involves talking about the ethics and the values of his kingdom. Now, all of that has relevance for this particular moment that we find ourselves in as a nation. I have made an effort to not endorse any particular party or candidate from this pulpit as a point of principle. 
I have been critical of those in office, but I believe those observations were justifiable, and I also think they were strongly connected to the text that I was seeking to expound and apply. But I can say with certainty that the elders of New Hope have no intention of telling you who to vote for or what party to align yourselves with. To do this, at this point, maybe there's some possible reality in the future where that becomes allowable and legitimate, but at this point, under the current circumstances, I believe that would be an overstepping of authority and a misuse of the solemn responsibility that God has placed on us. And I'd be guilty before God for that. And still, I must say this. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if he is your Lord and your God, then you must engage the world as if he is your Lord. If you engage in politics, you must do it as if he is your God. That is, his ethics, his commands, his words, his teachings must shape the way that you engage in every area of life, including politics. We can't set his lordship aside when we go to the ballot box. And so we need great wisdom. It's not easy. If you think it's easy, I think you're simplifying it. It's not oversimplifying it. But it must be our goal. So here are some guiding principles as you engage in politics, as you vote, or as you abstain from voting. As you use the freedom that you've been given under God's sovereignty in this, in this nation, here are a couple of quick guiding principles that I submit to you. And there are many, many more. You could perhaps come up with more. Feel free to share them with me. These are just things that have been burdening my heart. One, be honest and thoughtful about the evils in each party and about each candidate's sinfulness. Be honest about the virtues of each party and each candidate, but also about the sins of each party and each candidate. Don't let this race for the presidency become a good versus evil matter in your mind. Where whether it's elephant or donkey, that's one is right, one is wrong, one is evil, one is good, one is the power of darkness, one is the power of light. Don't let that happen. Consider carefully the areas where the candidate or party that you are choosing to support falls short of honoring Christ. In what ways are they rejecting Christ's wisdom and commands? In what ways are their policies and behaviors anti-Christ and harmful, destructive? We are, in, under God's sovereignty, we are in a nation that happens to be run or has been run over, over history by two major parties, and there is deep evil in both, right and left. We can, of course, argue over whose evil is greater, and where you land on that may very well decide how you vote. But as I've said many times before, if you feel perfectly at home and untroubled in either one of our nation's two major parties, you are not aligned with the ethics and values of Christ's kingdom. Many of us feel politically homeless because we're exiles. And again, my role is not to point, my role is to point to Jesus, to Christ, to hope in him. And that includes telling you that King Jesus loves life and hates the killing of life. King Jesus hates the killing of babies. 
King Jesus hates the abandonment of his specific design for sexuality. King Jesus hates the separating of families. He hates sexual immorality. He hates arrogance and lies and divisiveness and racism and fear-mongering. Xenophobia, he hates those things. And if you vote for either party, of course, you will have to do so in spite of their sin, won't you? My hope is that none of us would minimize or justify that sin. Number two, embrace your role as an exile in this world, a stranger in exile in this world. If Jesus is your Lord, then seek to serve him and your neighbor with your vote or with your abstention. But by all means, do your best to seek the good of this nation without staking your hope in the good of this nation. When the Hebrews were exiled to Babylon, they didn't have a vote. But if they did, I would say, vote like a Hebrew in Babylon, who was sure that they had that hope of return to the promised land. They were voting in Babylon knowing that that wasn't their true and permanent home. Don't vote like a citizen of this world who's willing to employ the, the, the sinful, corrupt means of this world to obtain safety, power, even justice for yourself or for others. If Jesus is your Lord and your God. You've been sent as an exile into this world to live here with your eyes and hope set on him and his eternal kingdom. And the best thing you can offer this world is hope in Jesus, his peace, his presence forever. That's not to say that we don't serve and fight and vote and labor for particular causes that the Lord has made uh, clearly uh, important and the causes that the Lord has placed a burden on us for and has placed a passion in our hearts for. We have to give our, ourselves to those things that God has called us to. Issues of justice and righteousness, mercy. But as we do that, we cannot forget who we are. And by the way, last thing I'll say about that, living as an exile means that you will spend more time in the communications of your God to you than you do in the news and the politics and the social media of this world. You'll spend more time worried about what God is saying to you in his word than what the world is saying to you. Thirdly, I'm almost done. Thirdly, give grace to others who vote differently than you. And I think especially when it comes to believers, give grace to others who vote differently than you. In fact, love one another through those differences. You do not know how your brother or sister has wrestled and prayed and talked to come to a decision. Humbly realize, brothers and sisters, that you don't have a corner on wise biblical thinking. You may look at your brother or sister who disagrees with you and you say, they are misled, they are mistaken. Yes, perhaps they are. But humility says, I might be too. There may be areas where a brother or sister's position is clearly sin and they need to be called away from sin. They stand in favor of something that God opposes that is sin. You stand in favor of abortion on demand, the killing of, of children unjustly. And it, or if you support an explicit injustice of any sort. Those are direct violations of God's word and scriptural commands. But most of us, if we're voting for either of these candidates, we're voting for a candidate in spite of what we see 
as their evil positions or their policies or their practices personally. When Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians disagree, we need to walk cautiously. We need to assume the best, not the worst. It's a difficult time. You might look at someone else and say, it's so clear why they shouldn't hold that position or why they shouldn't vote that way. It's so obvious. And I see thinking like that in both directions. It's not that simple, is it? And if it's that simple to you, perhaps you're not thinking that carefully about it. In, in, in Romans 14, there were people that were forbidding the eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols. And to them, it was so simple. It was obviously, it was a no-brainer. That's idolatry. You don't do that. Christians just don't do that. The Apostle Paul comes and says, wait a second. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. The issue is more complex than you think. And this brother or sister is free in Christ to make the decision they've made. So take caution in accusing your brother of sin when he's prayerfully sought to inform his conscience and honor God with his decision. Don't be an accuser. You know who the accuser is, right? He's named that for a reason. And what God has brought together by the blood of his son, do not allow partisanship to, to separate. And lastly, and here I'll stop, if Jesus is your Lord and God, remember he still reigns. Even if the moral compass of our nation continues to steer wildly away from true north, he still reigns. Do you believe that? That if unjust laws are not overturned, he still reigns. That if racialization and racism are not eradicated, or police reform does not take place, or refugees continue to be rejected at our borders and many other borders around the world, that he still reigns. And he will do justice. That if Christians lose religious freedom in this nation, he still reigns. Even if this nation continues to brutally kill its unborn, whether those rates of abortion increase or decrease, he still reigns. I'm not saying none of those, all of those things matter deeply to God, but I'm saying no matter what happens in any of those areas, he still reigns and he will do justice. Again, no one can tell you, and I certainly can't tell you how to vote, Frankly, I can't tell you who to vote for. I can tell you how to vote, how to vote according to some of these principles. I, in a recent article, Dr. John Piper pointed to the pads of, what well, he says, he says, these are the pads of destruction that, that the two major parties seem to be directing us towards. He says there's a path of destruction uh, that, 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 that's, that's paved with the killing of unborn children and, and confusion over sexuality. That marks one poor party, and then he points to another party, and he said, there's, there's the path of arrogance and divisiveness and, and blatant lies and hateful speech that marks this candidate over here. And, and again, this is him speaking personally, just speaking of his own convictions, and he reached this conclusion as a preacher, Dr. Piper had said. He said, I will not develop some calculus to determine which path of destruction I will support. That is not my duty. Now, perhaps it is our duty to determine some kind of way to make sense of that for ourselves personally, but I would agree with him that it is not my role to determine that calculus for you. My calling, he says, and I quote, and I agree, is to lead people to see Jesus Christ, and I will invite them to become exiles, to have a kingdom that will never be shaken, not even when America is a footnote in the archives of the new creation. 
Oh, my God, I love it. This is where I want to be. I don't know. I hope this is where you want to be. Even as I exercise my freedom to vote according to my Bible-informed conscience, and you do the same, I hope this is where we want to be in our public witness as a church. Please pray with me. Our risen Lord and God, we believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. We need your spirit to live as your people. Give him to us. We ask in your name. Amen.